Well, there is a phrase in Psalm 20 that's just been stuck in my brain for, for years since I read it. And it goes like this. Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I think this has been stuck in my head for a few reasons. One, because it's a little bit strange. Uh, it's different enough to be memorable. Uh, two, it seems dated, but it's actually quite relevant. And three, it doesn't feel really like it has any application for us, but it's really very applicable to our lives in 21st century America, believe it or not. Psalm 20 is a psalm for the king. It's a prayer for David, the king of Old Testament Israel. The people of Israel here in Psalm 20 are focused on the king as he prepares to lead their forces into battle. Their attention, the people's attention and the people's concern is justified for as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. Their fortunes are locked up with the kings. So the people pray for the king in verses 1 through 5. Now before you check out, uh, disappointed or disinterested because this psalm is about the king, uh, or because there seems to be this great deal of distance between this psalm and where you are, between the time this psalm was written and the time in which we live, before you check out because you might think that this psalm has nothing really to do with you, have patience. It might seem like it has nothing to do with you, but have patience. It's like a couple of years ago when the city started to chip and seal down 6th Street right in front of the post office. I didn't think much of it when they were working in front of the post office. Granted, it was a little bit annoying. I had to drive a block out of my way to go home, but it didn't really affect me, not really. It's a little annoying, but I didn't really think much of it. But a few days later, I had to correct my thinking. They were then, a few days later, chipping and sealing right in front of our house. I actually had to call the city because for the better part of one day, we had no way to access our house by car. I mean, what did they think I was going to do? Park on Spruce Street and walk 50 feet to my house like some kind of chump? No, I need to pull right next to my house. I'm late. I have a desk job. I'm not walking to the... The mess by the post office had more to do with me than I imagined it did. I suspect you'll find the same to be true with Psalm 20. It doesn't seem immediately important to us, but in fact it has very much to do with us, with where you are and where I am. We'll just have to work and get there. You see, Psalm 20 is a prayer that we can still pray. Look at verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5 record the prayer of the people for the king of Israel. It says, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices, accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart, make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. This is a prayer we can still pray. The people pray that the Lord Yahweh will answer the king in the day of distress, in the day of trouble. The king is facing something serious, possibly a war, maybe just a defensive situation. Distress could mean that Israel had even come under attack or something of the sort. They are in trouble for some reason. We just don't know what exactly. The people pray for the name of the God of Jacob. Do you see that? The name of the God of Jacob to protect 
the king. Speaking of the Lord Yahweh as the God of Jacob illustrates that he is the covenant God who makes commitments and then sticks to them. This verse sounds a lot like what Jacob said to his clan in Genesis chapter 35. He says this, Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress, who's been with me wherever I've gone. What a God we have in life's dark hours. Hmm? This psalm reminds us of a powerful truth. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, he says, We have a Jacob God for our David moments. We have a Jacob God for our David moments. We have a God who protects. That is literally a God who sets his servant in a high place, out of and above the reach of the enemies or the would-be distress. It's like when my sister's monsters, I mean, sorry, that says children, when my sister's children came to visit. Everything we owned that was valuable went up on top of the kitchen cabinets, out of their reach, above their reach. So it is. God sets his people in a safe place, up out of harm's way. He protects the king. He protects his own. And if you belong to him by faith in Jesus Christ, he protects you too. The people pray for the Lord to send the king help from the sanctuary and grant the king support from Zion. The Lord's throne is in the heavens, And that's the ultimate source of his help, but his earthly sanctuary is the place of his feet, the appointed place of the Lord's presence where his people are right to expect his aid. Help comes from the Lord who reigns above and who has chosen to dwell here below with his people. He will help. He will give support. In verse 3, the people mention the king's burnt offerings, his sacrifices, his gifts. Look at verse 3 again. He says, may he remember all of your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. This is not some ritual motivated by legalism. The king has used the God-provided means in the Old Testament of atonement. Burnt offerings were the payment of sins in the Old Testament. In light of the king's obedience and his worship of the Lord, the people pray that the Lord Yahweh will give him, verse 4, his heart's desires, fulfill his plans, and his strategies, and all his requests. And then verse 5, the people themselves vow to delight and celebrate the victory the Lord gives the king. Let's remind ourselves why the people are so fixated on the king's success. The welfare of the people was dependent upon the success of the king. Disaster for the king equals disaster for the people. During the Civil War, a man named Charles Dana was a, an observer. Uh, I guess they did that. I'm not sure why you'd want to be out observing all of this, I guess for posterity's sake, history. Charles Dana, Dana was an observer at the Battle of Chickamauga. He was at staff headquarters behind Union lines. He'd been taking a nap. It seems like a foolish thing to do, take a nap during... And then he was awoken by the loudest noise he'd ever heard, rifles and cannons. The Confederates had overrun the Union flank, and they were just pouring in. Dana says that the first thing he saw when he woke up from his afternoon nap was General Rosecrans, a devout Roman Catholic, genuflecting, crossing himself. Dana knew instinctively that if the general was crossing himself, the army was in deep trouble. Can you even imagine So Dana jumped on his horse and skedaddled. 
this is the thinking here in Psalm chapter 20, especially regarding the king. In one sense, in one very real sense, David is Israel. Were David killed, Israel would flounder in darkness and confusion. His death, David's death, the king's death would spell disaster for the people. The people were intricately united with their king. I mentioned earlier that this prayer is a prayer that we can still pray. And it's true. It's just a little bit different for us now living after the the death and resurrection of Jesus. We pray something like verses 1 through 5, though differently because the son of David, David's Lord, already sits enthroned. Unlike David, Christ is not going out to fight the Philistines or the Syrians nor is he waging a defensive campaign against the enemy. Rather, the root of David has already won the victory. He's already won. He has crushed death to death on the cross. He has risen, ascended, and he sits at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus has already won the war. He's already vanquished every foe, every visible and invisible enemy. Only the cleanup work remains. So unlike the prayers in Psalm 20, we don't pray for Jesus to be victorious. We pray because he's already been victorious. We don't pray for victory. We pray from victory. On the day Jesus began to reign, our prayers changed a bit. That day changed everything. Like the people of Israel, we are inseparably united to our king. We are victorious because the king has won the ultimate victory. Indeed, the only thing for him to do is to come back and to set the world at rights. And friends, let me tell you, that day is a coming and quick. We celebrate Jesus' victory very much like like our celebration in verse 5, but we don't pray for victory. We pray that Jesus would make known that he would display his victory. That the scoffers would see Jesus as victor and give their lives to him. That his people would rest in the victory that he has won until he takes us home or returns victorious. We pray, but we pray on the basis of a victory already achieved. Does that make sense? So he takes Psalm 20 and we, we twist it just a little bit and remember that Jesus is already the victor. We don't pray for his victory, we pray because he's victorious. Psalm 20 gives us a prayer we can pray, albeit a little differently. And it reveals the position we must take. Look at verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> the psalmist says, Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. In these verses, the king is speaking. Notice in verse 6 the shift of pronouns from the second person singular. Sorry, I'm a nerd. Second person singular, you, to the first person, I. He starts praying himself. The king, seems, <clears throat> the king seems completely confident of the Lord's help. He says, now this I know. 
It seems a tad bit premature. The king hasn't even gone out to battle yet, and still the king says, the Lord gives victory. The verbs in verse 6 are in a past tense. The Lord gives. He answers. The king is so convinced of the Lord's saving that he depicts it as already having happened. Isn't that awesome? This is like Paul in Romans chapter 8, where he says, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Glorified in the past tense. Not will glorify, but glorified. Duh. Glorified. It hasn't happened yet. It's still in the future for all of us that are here, yet to come. But since God has determined to do it, it is so certain that it can be spoken of as already having occurred. It hasn't happened yet, and yet it's happened. Glorified. King David stands absolutely grounded in his certainty here before he even heads out to battle, that he trusts the Lord in the victory he's already given. His certainty in God extends to verse 8, where the king pictures his opponents already defeated. He's sitting at home writing this song, sitting on his piano or with his lyre, writing this song, and he says, yeah, they're, they're done. They are brought to their knees and they fall. The king's confidence, sure and certain as it is, rests on whether or not the king and his people have assumed the right position. They can only be confident if they assume the right position. The position is spelled out in verse 7, that verse that I love. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I love how the verses read in Hebrew. And again, no, I don't speak Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew. I have fancy leather-bound books that tell me what the Hebrew says. And one friend that I call all the time, poor Sarah Jean, God bless her. Hey, Sarah, can you tell me what this says? Um, You don't have to be smart. You just have to have friends smarter than you. That's all I am. I just have a bunch of really smart friends. In Hebrew, the verb doesn't show up until the last phrase. So verse 7 reads in the original language something like this. Some in chariots, some in horses, but we, well, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. The psalmist speaks for himself and for his people, saying that they call upon the name of the Lord, they lean upon the Lord, they trust in him, and in this case, they trust in him to the exclusion of trusting in chariots or in horses. You see, if you trust in the Lord, you will take a non-chariot, non-horse position. Horses and chariots were the very pinnacle of warfare in this day, Uh, gave the army that possessed them the fighting edge. In Egypt, legend has it that the king's chariot was actually considered, the chariot itself was considered a divine being. And the Egyptians would sing songs to various parts of the chariot. And I don't know any of those songs, but it makes me wonder, I mean, do they sing to the wheel and like to the front? I don't know if there's spikes on it, but they're singing, they're worshiping this chariot as this divine being. So one can imagine why upon seeing Pharaoh's chariot and 600 of Egypt's best chariots and all the other chariots in Egypt coming toward them as they stand by the Red Sea, one can imagine why the Israelites were so terrified. Here are all these chariots, and we've heard the king's chariot might even be a god itself. Terrified. If you had horses and chariots 
and your enemy didn't, you would likely win the day. Horses and chariots were game changers. The danger here, though, was that too often a substitution was made, and God's people would start to trust in human armaments rather than in the arm of the Lord. The Lord's people must not lean on mere human power, even power with steroids like horses and chariots. The prophet Isaiah, he actually pronounces woe on those who trust in chariots and horses. He says woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Woe to them. Woe. The problem is that too much can happen. The problem with trusting horses and chariots is that too much can happen to mere human resources. Chariots are a a case in point. In Joshua chapter 11, you remember, Joshua strikes the enemy. He hamstrings their horses and then burns their chariots before they could use them effectively. If you trust in horses and chariots and then someone does something to your horses and chariots, you're up a creek. In the book of Judges, Sisera's army, mighty, mighty army, they were bogged down by mud. The Lord caused it to rain in this valley where it never rains, and all of Sisera's army, their chariots, their horses were stuck in mud. If you trust in chariots and horses, they can get stuck in mud. Too much can happen to mere human resources. This can be said even when nations graduate or advance to tanks and planes and missiles and drones. It's not that the Americans didn't have planes in Pearl Harbor in 1941. It's just that they had, they had disarmed them and they grouped them all together to prevent sabotage. Uh, probably not the worst idea. So when the Japanese pilots came to Hickam and Wheeler Fields, the American forces were decimated. All the, all the planes were bunched up and disarmed. Whoops. It's not that the Germans didn't have tanks when they were fighting Russia, but temperatures in Russia start to plummet pretty fast, and at 31 degrees below zero, German tanks are useless. They don't, they don't do anything. Flaunted resources of human power can be very fragile, even flimsy. They're just horses and chariots. The people of God, Psalm 20, charges the people of God not to place their trust in those things. The people of God must take a different position. In verse 8, the psalmist speaks of they and their versus we. It says, they are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. That is, those, everyone who trusts in horses and chariots will be brought to their knees and will fall. But those who trust in the Lord will rise up and stand firm. We have to, we have to, have to shun our favorite props, our most cherished substitutes, and keep running to the Lord, finding shelter and protection in him, just as the angel of God and the the pillar of cloud protected the Israelites in the desert. All these chariots are coming, The people are stuck between the sea and the chariots, between a rock and a hard place, nowhere to go, but the Lord comes and stands in between them. That's what you need. 
Chariots can do nothing. The Lord can do everything. Keep trusting God and God alone is the point. Now, I'll warn you, if you have a roast in the oven or if, if you need an excuse, it's about to get real personal real quick. So if you need to go blow your nose or something, um, head to the bathroom, I, I don't blame you. This, this is where it gets uncomfortable even for me. Think about what we place our trust in. Those things aren't much different, really, and certainly aren't any better than chariots and horses. We trust in ourselves, don't we? We even say things like, if you want something done right, do it yourself. We look to our wisdom, to our ability, to our power to save us, to pull us out of whatever situation we find ourselves in. And in fact, this mindset, we can do it ourselves, has even crept into Christianity, when in fact it's the opposite of biblical. The first sentence of the first chapter of Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking, if you have it, by the way, don't donate it to the library, throw it away, or burn it. It's horrible. It's not Christian. It says, believe in yourself. That's the first line of his book. Believe in yourself. Trust in your abilities. Have faith in your abilities. No, no, don't. Whatever you do, don't have faith in your abilities. Please, please don't. That's not Christianity, even a little bit. It has nothing to do with biblical faith. We trust in the size of our bank account, don't we? As long as I have some cushion, I'll be fine. We live and die with our bank balance. We serve and worship at the altar of money. We place our trust in this. Chariots and horses. We are forever caught in the ongoing political cycle. It never ends. There's nothing we can do about it. We're just stuck here until Jesus comes back. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we might just start to tie our hopes and our dreams to this candidate or that, to this politician or that politician. We might even hear ourselves or someone we know Let's point the finger at someone else, because we would never say something as foolish as, they are our only hope. Without them, we are going to be in a world of hurt. You've never said anything like that. If this person gets elected, I am headed to Canada. We have family there. You know what every bit, every stinking ounce of the politics as savior mindset is? Chariots and horses. Chariots and horses. We tend to place our trust in people. And some of that's fine. Some of that's good. We're given a church that we should trust and and lean on. We should trust our loved ones. But we have to realize that they, that another person, will never give you what you need. Never. It's, It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. That someone else can complete you fulfill you, give you everything you need, it doesn't happen, will never happen. To give any person the trust that only God is worthy of will only serve to disappoint. Our good deeds, we might believe, maybe we've even been taught to believe that our good deeds, our goodness, our self-righteousness will do for us what only a Savior can do. To trust that my works have any ability to save my sinful soul Well, that's just foolish. 
All of these are just chariots and horses. Maybe impressive, maybe formidable. You might have more money in your wallet than I do. I have $3, thanks to my kids. <laughs> what we trust in might be formidable, but it's all finite and it's all temporary. All those things that we tend to trust in are very poor, poor substitutes for the living, all-powerful God. We must shun our favorite props, our most cherished substitutes, and place our trust in the hands of the only one who is trustworthy. This is the position, the only position we must take. I, don't, I can't speak for you, but my life, my life seems to be one long experiment and learning not to trust in the things that I'm tempted to trust. Again and again, we have to learn that only the nail-scarred hands of the resurrected Jesus are capable to hold us up. People of God, brothers, sisters, friends, do not place your trust in all those silly things that you're tempted to place your trust in. Just don't. Chariots and horses make lousy saviors. Money and politics, ourselves, our country, our family, our good deeds are worthless to save. There's no security there. Security that's not eternal, security that's not forever, is a lousy security. Security that's only for a moment, or security that's only there until the, the markets crash, security that's only there until you offend that person, is lousy security. Lousy saviors, chariots and horses. Why are we so tempted to trust finite, frail, and flimsy trinkets, people, when we can trust the God of Jacob, the Lord Yahweh, the God who holds the entire world in his hands? Why would we trust this when we can trust God? And yet we do it all the time. When you're in trouble, don't expect horses and chariots to save you. Call on the name of the Lord, the one who will send you help from above, the God of Jacob, who is your protection. When you're in need, don't seek answers from horses and chariots. They can't say anything, anyhow. Mr. Ed, I guess. Don't seek answers from them. Look to the Lord who gives victory, who saves and redeems with the power of his mighty hand. When you don't have the strength, the strength of horses and chariots won't do much. The Lord Almighty, the God who reigns on high, will answer you and remember you and lift you up. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. The psalm ends in verse 9 with this summation, Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. This we know. He has indeed given victory to the King of Kings. Jesus has conquered. He has defeated death and sin, Satan, all the forces of hell. Victory is won. And on the basis of Jesus' victory, we are victorious. We overcome. We overcome not with chariots and horses, but by the word of God and the, the blood of the testimony. We overcome through Jesus and by Jesus and because of Jesus. God has answered us. He's given us Jesus. He has met our deepest needs. Through Jesus' blood, he hears us when we call. 
And because of Jesus, we can call on him anytime. Let us shout for joy over his victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. Chariots and horses. We have no need of chariots and horses, lousy saviors, because we trust. We trust in the name of the Lord our God and in the King whose name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and peace. Serve the Lord. Love you all. Great.